Welcome to Pass It On with CWR Talent. I'm Corinne Winterisay, and this is my podcast. At CWR Talent, we've dedicated this podcast to sharing the experiences of some of the most successful executives in my network. And it's not always the ones at the top. We'll speak to leaders of all styles and hear advice on how to build a rewarding and meaningful career with resilience, tenacity, and balance. For those of you who know me, I've had the pleasure to work with some of the most gifted and bright business leaders over the last 30 years in the hospitality and entertainment industries. I've guided hundreds of candidates in moves of their professional lives. My specialty? Discover talent and pass it on. That's it. In simpler terms, I'm a headhunter with a twist. I hope to shine a light on the beauty of coaching and mentoring to gain emotional intelligence and balance in your life and how you can benefit from what we've got to share. Join me and my very special guests for in-depth Q&A interviews covering our industry's challenges and the current market for talent. This is CWR, and let's pass it on. Today's very special guest is my very good friend and colleague, John Hudson. John Hudson is a bicultural American working and based in France for over 30 years. His combined expertises in entertainment, hospitality, recruitment, retail operations, management, HR, and advertising give him a valuable insight into business objectives and the vision to find unique solutions to help people produce extraordinary results. Having been part of the opening team at Disneyland Paris Resort, John was a member of the team that recruited 15,000 people in 12 months and managed the European recruitment team with 2,000 hires a year. John understands the idea of working under pressure to meet goals. He attained additional operational experience in business acumen by managing a team of more than 115 people at the Disney Store Champs-Élysées, the most profitable store of the Disney Store chain worldwide. As HR director for the advertising agency Low Paris, he provided valuable advice during a critical downsizing period, helping the agency to attain its economic goals without compromising on hiring, integrating, training, and retaining new talent. In his most recent incarnation as founding partner of Macmillan HCD, John's training seminars on advanced negotiations, change management, cultural diversity, guest service skills, key management skills, recruitment, succession planning, and leadership are super interactive and fun and show an effective, efficient, productive way to gain a proven return on investment. Let's welcome our very special guest today, John Hudson. Welcome, John, to Pass It On with CWR Talent. Thanks, Corinne. Thanks for having me. Thanks for agreeing to come on to the show and speak to our listeners about your international career and one of your passions, negotiations. Before we launch into this valuable but mysterious subject, I'm delighted to begin by asking you some basic information you could share about your beginnings with our listeners. Where did it all begin, John? Well, I, I can say that I'm, I'm not in the career that I thought I would be in. When I was young, I wanted to be a forest ranger or, a, or play guitar in a rock band. I still go camping, and I love my guitars, but that's not how it ended. I think I'm a, I'm a product of determination and luck. When I, was, um, when I first started in France, I lived in the north, 
and I'd finished my studies and I wanted, desperately wanted to, to be part of that project of Euro Disney though. And I had written three letters. I'd applied three times to Disneyland Paris and I'd received three refusal letters. So I asked myself, what can I do so I can get somebody on the line so I can meet somebody in person and try to become a part of this project? And I started thinking, and I remembered that I had been uh, an interpreter when I was a student for a mayor in a town of, in, in the north of France um, who had received the mayor of his sister city in the United States. And chatting with this mayor, he had mentioned that he met and knew Bob Fitzpatrick, who was the uh, project uh, president of Euro Disney. And so I contacted that mayor, and uh, he was kind enough to make sure that my CV got on the right desk of the right person. And, and that's how it happened. What was the trigger that set you on a path of an international expat existence far from your native country? What was the opportunity you couldn't pass up? Well, after 10 years with Disney, I have to start this way. Mine is a story as old as time. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was studying broadcasting and cinema at Arizona State University because I wanted to be a director. Now, there's not a whole lot of Hollywood opportunities in, in the central Arizona, and Spielberg wasn't my uncle, but I was still passionate about that. And doing that degree, I had to take two years of a foreign language, and my college sweetheart convinced me to take French with her uh, because she'd taken French in, in high school and she was going to help me. And in taking French, I literally fell in love with, with the language, the culture, the literature. So I changed my degree. And that, that uh, change cost me six more months on my degree program, but those six months were in France. And when I got here, I truly, I fell in love with France, the, the history, the literature, the language, the culture, the food, and a French girl. I'm still in love with France and a different French girl. And a lovely French girl she is. Hello, Ad. Thanks, Cruel. What was the biggest gain for you uh, in changing industries within HR functions? Your background's so diverse, John. You've worked in human resource functions within hospitality entertainment, retail operations, advertising, and you've built a successful training consultancy over the last 15 years with Macmillan HCD. So all the changing industries within the HR functions, what have you learned? Well, a, a great deal, actually, incredible, an incredible great deal. And I consider myself very lucky. I have to admit, uh, this again, is a, it's a bit of luck and a lot of determination. Each time I moved, it was because I had met somebody who opened an opportunity, opened a door. Yves Cochard at Disneyland Paris, who later became my mentor, um, Sandra Rambeau and you, uh, Corinne, who helped me uh, become a, a consultant. Those all those people helped create opportunities, and I seized those opportunities. And that's the determination part. Now, what I learned, I have to say, is the idea of best practices, the idea of taking things from one industry or, or one division or one department or one person and using that and applying that in different uh, applications. For example, Disney's really, really good at what they do. And I'm friends with a lot of people from Disney who've been there for over 30 years and same in the advertising uh, industry. And they do a great job and, and that's, that's wonderful. But moving around in those different industries, I took some best practices that I got from one and shared with the others. And, and it, they were thinking that I was some great guru with a wonderful mind. And all I was doing was using the the things that I had picked up along those experiences. Uh, and, and I think I think that's the best 
lesson I learned from that. That's the best advantage I got from going across uh, different industries. Excellent. How important is planning your career path when it seems there are a few certainties one can count on? Or do you recommend winging it to aspiring leaders or a combination of both? Give some examples. Well, I would say see my above answer for this one. Um, I think it depends on the person. Uh, There are a lot of truly driven future leaders who know exactly what they want. And and I think that's great. I'm actually uh, envious of people like that. I was not like that at all. Um, I I think we need to know how to create opportunities. And by the way, that starts with where you are now. Um, We have to seize the opportunities that are right in front of us. I, I say that because I meet a lot of people who are beginning their career. And too often I hear phrases like, Uh, Yeah, I'll do that once I get there or I'll take this opportunity once I get to this point. And and it just makes me smile because you need to start creating those opportunities where you are now because that's how you're going to get to that next level. I'll I'll tell you, Corinne, I have never hired an entry-level job in the advertising industry from an external candidate. It always came from somebody who was doing an internship or, or somebody who I had met. Uh, it, it always came from people who were showing me what they were doing now and they were already ready to move on. And it's the same thing in management. I never promoted a manager because I thought that maybe they were going to be able to fill that role. I promoted people to management positions because they were already demonstrating the tools and techniques needed to be a good manager. I took people who had proven that they'd already demonstrated those skills, especially the soft skills. Um, An an example, I can train you to use Excel or to create a merchandising planogram, you know, placing product on a a shop wall. Uh, But if you know how to create those those opportunities and you use those, I, I detect those soft skills that you have that are harder to train into people, I think the career path will follow. By the way, I still don't know what I want to do when I grow up, but but I do know that when I get there, I'll seize that opportunity. We love too. watching you grow up, John. Yes, we do. Hey, listen, mistakes are necessary to learn. What's the one honest mistake you've made from which you've learned the most? And how would you advise your younger self about taking the benefit of avoiding it? I, I've made plenty of mistakes. I mean, that's how we get where we are. By the way, the definition of an an expert is somebody who makes mistakes, but they don't make the same mistake twice. Uh, I would say professionally, the biggest mistake I made uh, when I left Disneyland Paris to go to the Disney stores, I was thinking I could just slide into my management role uh, managing those stores. Uh, I thought my management skills and my people skills would carry me on and, and I would be just as successful as I had been at Disneyland Paris. I was very, very wrong. And I learned that the hard way. I realized that I knew nothing of the technical side, merchandising, stock management, negotiating, uh, negotiating with internal buyers and and allocators. Uh, I had completely underestimated that side of it. The day before I left Disneyland Paris, I'm a recognized expert at international hiring practices, working permits, preparing and executing job fairs, hiring and training hundreds of people. The next day, here I am at the Disney stores, and a 19-year-old is schooling me on merchandising, <laughs> bigger and darker products, bigger and darker products on the bottom, smaller and lighter products up top, top selling products between the uh, hand and eye level. Uh, and that I learned the hard way. 
Well, you know, it's what John, when we met, you were participating in the recruitment team for the pre-opening of Disneyland Paris. And you were my first interview when I ultimately was recruited to prepare the HR function for the hotel division opening. And as it turned out, beyond, you've seen probably one of the largest scale European recruitment drives up close and personal. While we prepared to open a company on a fixed date with a time and 18,000 people, ultimately all costumed, smiling on stage. What were the three main personality traits that sparked your interest enough to recommend a new hire for such a massive project? What did great talent look like to you? I tell you what, Corinne, I love when people ask me this question and for fear of, you know, opening the curtain and showing the magic behind. Uh, it's actually back in the days when we were hiring operational people, if we hired, for example, um, a house cleaning cast member, um, after they were hired, they would have three weeks of training to become a cast member. So to answer your question, the three things, if you give me somebody who likes people, one, Two, who smiles, but has a natural smile, not somebody who needs to be coached up to smile. If I coach you up to smile, okay, you'll smile. But then after the 300th person asks you, uh, and this is a 300th time in the day, where are the toilets, where are the restrooms, that smile is going to fade. So if you have a natural smile, number two, and three, if you show up to work on time and you like working with people, if you have those three traits, you're going to succeed at Disneyland Paris, and I will make you the best housekeeper in Europe. We were looking for operational people. And, and, and plus, there was a huge incentive. We were looking for people who wanted to be part of a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And that brings me back to the idea of luck and determination. Some of the people I hired or worked with from that opening, they're now presidents of other European theme parks, in charge of security for international companies, um, HRVPs for multinationals, or even a president of a football club. That's fantastic. I mean, there's so many people from Disney, and they do this very, very well, is to give people a shot. There's so many people that were given opportunities for roles that they might not on the external market been fully qualified for yet, but they got a shot because they had all the basics there and the company was willing to develop them. All, all a very good thing. I agree 100%. And, and the best example I can give you is my wife. Uh, my wife uh, started almost 30 years ago with Disneyland Paris as a food and beverage management trainee. Uh, she did that up until opening. After opening and recruitment, uh, she was taken on as what was called then a, a loner, if you will. And she would come in the, their off season and hire people for, uh, for the high season. And then recruitment liked her so much, she ended up staying there. And then a few years later was uh, transferred over to housing and is now senior manager for the housing department and manages a multi-million a year budget to house cast members who come from uh, provinces. It's fantastic. It's such opportunities. That's for sure. True. Not a lot of companies uh, have that type of uh, vision and internal uh, placement. Programs. No, they don't. They certainly don't. And, and again, that's a perfect example of seizing opportunities. Exactly. We'll take a quick break right now and be right back with more from John Hudson, our very special guest, who will discuss with us next the art of negotiation. And we'll give some great advice on how to achieve confidence in your negotiations, no matter if for aspiring sales directors or if you're negotiating a salary increase with your boss or negotiating a truce with your kids for peace and quiet while you're in quarantine. We'll be right back. 
We'll be right back. We'll be right back. We'll be right back. And we're back with our guest, John Hudson, co-founder of Macmillan HCD. Let's talk about the art of negotiation, John, how it can help you build resilience and confidence for the challenging times ahead. I'm fascinated by your advanced negotiations training programs, and you've always told me that negotiations don't have to be so complicated. If we were more truly interested in the other party's interests, obstacles, and actively listening to them, we'd all be a bit more successful. Tell us a bit about how our listeners can get there. Well, it's exactly like you just said. The first thing you have to do is truly understand what your own objective is and not to make that up with strategies to get there. Uh, an example, uh, Corinne, imagine we weren't doing this uh, online. Imagine I was fortunate enough to be in London with you. Okay, so I flew from Paris to London this week uh, so I could do this podcast with Corinne. And um, I flew there with uh, British Airways, by the way. And so we do the podcast. It's all fine and done. It gets finished. And I leave your office. Um, when I leave your office, Corinne, where do you think I'm going? You're going to the airport. Right. Okay. I'm going to the airport. Now, <laughs> I, know this never, <laughs> I know this never happens in London, but let's imagine there's a strike. So the airplanes aren't flying. But that's not a problem, Corinne, because you just told me my objective is to get to the airport. Actually... Uh, now I'm like Tom Hanks in the movie, The Terminal. <laughs> oh. what, what is my real objective, Corinne? To get home. Exactly right. And the airport is simply a means to get there. So I could take a bus. I could take the channel. I could swim the channel if I were 23 again. <laughs> <laughs> the idea is to not mix up your strategies with your objectives so that you have other options than just the one you've always been used to doing. Secondly, uh, I think you absolutely have to hone your listening skills. You have to truly listen to hear what they are saying, to try to understand what are their objectives, what are their obstacles. Um, you have to be interested in them. And when I say listening, I don't mean listening to hear what you want to hear. You have to truly pull back, get some objectivity, uh, some helicoptering, if you will, and try to understand what are they truly saying. Interesting. How do negotiations differ from crisis periods of limited funds, from boom times when available spend is plenty? What are some examples of some successful negotiations during COVID, for example? Well, actually, I see that in, as a two-part uh, question. There is the technical side because we're negotiating so much more uh, via Zoom or Teams or or, or blue jeans or whatever. So uh, sometimes it's just negotiating with them to get them to the table, to get them to accept a Zoom meeting if you have somebody who's maybe not as comfortable with technology, et cetera. Um, mm. it, is, it is harder to negotiate with somebody uh, online uh, when you're not in the room. You're going to miss all those nonverbal cues. It, it's harder to see people. Uh, for example, if all three of the people with whom you're negotiating lean over all at once, and start scribbling, well, you've said something that they really are interested in, positively or negatively, but they're interested in that. And it's harder to see that when we're doing all these things um, online. And, and especially, um, and buyers are very good at this, by the way, uh, that uncomfortable silence. Uh, we do that in the real world in a room, 
they'll use silence to make you throw more at them to give more margin or to give a better price. But that uncomfortable silence <laughs> online is multiplied. Um, it's very it's very bizarre, isn't it? It, it? When people stop speaking online, you're kind of wondering if they left the room and went to get a cup of tea. You're not even sure. Exactly. Exactly. There are also a couple of a couple of hints um, to make it a fair and even playground. Um, if their camera is off, I would suggest your camera would be would be off as well. Now, my negotiation negotiating, I'm sorry, personality is much more cooperative. So I like negotiating with the camera on because even if it is remote negotiating, I still want to work on those relationships. And especially since most of my uh, clients, I'm in a long-term relationship with them. Um, so even that is can be a negotiation, negotiating to get them to have their cameras on. But at the end of the day, Corinne, if you understand that there's a structure behind negotiations, and if you know and you're comfortable with the tools and techniques uh, in, in involved with that structure, well, the negotiating today is not that much more complicated than it was pre-COVID. I've worked with Scott Work for 15 years, and Scott Work has existed uh, for over 45 years. We've gone through, the world has gone through crises like this before, uh, maybe mm -hmm. as acute, but uh, that structure is there and helps. And it helps you guide, manage your negotiation, uh, drive through your negotiation, navigate your negotiation. In this world of indecision, we need to stop trying to find 99 ways to say no and try to find some way to say yes. Getting them to the table, getting them to tell you their needs, getting them to tell you their obstacles. Um, it's truly you as a negotiator need to stop trying to find 99 ways to say no and try to find some way to say yes. The biggest mistake in negotiations by any negotiator is not making proposals. We sit in this vicious circle of arguing and persuading and just we think we're right and we say it a third or a fourth time because in our mind, they just don't understand. Well, actually, they do understand. They just don't agree. So we need to make proposals. Excellent. So tell me something now. How can our future leaders become more resilient? What behavioral soft skills are most sought after for a successful negotiation? Well, at the risk of repeating myself, and in case you didn't hear it, sorry, that was an easy one, listening skills. You know what you want, but you don't necessarily know what they want. And, and you won't know what they want if you don't ask and if you don't listen. So I would add good questioning skills. One of the reasons I am an excellent negotiator is because I was an excellent recruiter, interviewer. I asked a lot of questions and I'm truly interested in their answers. I, I want to know what drives them. I want to know what they would do in this situation. I want to know their issues. So I ask lots and lots of open-ended questions and I don't uh, give them hints at the end of that question. I don't qualify those questions. An example, Corinne, who asks more open-ended questions than anybody else on earth? Children. You're absolutely right. And why did they do that? Because they don't know. I'll tell you a story. My daughter, Emma, was seven years old, and she came up to me one day and she said, Papa, why do you work? <laughs> Corinne. Oh, that is a good question. <laughs> well, stop. If you asked me that question, I, I would say cut it out and buy me a pint. 
Um, actually, <laughs> she truly wanted to know why I worked. Why? Because uh, I still, well, pre-COVID, um, I would spend 20 to 25 weeks a year in hotels elsewhere, abroad. And when she would ask my wife, where is Papa? And my wife would say, well, Papa's working. And Emma didn't understand why I would go away and not stay home to play with her, to cook with her, uh, to play video games with her. Uh, she wanted to know why I went away. So when she asked, why do you work? There was a lot behind that. And I've never forgotten that. Now, on the other side of that, who asks almost exclusively closed questions? Big people. <laughs> You're in my story now, aren't you? You're absolutely right, adults. And why do we do that, Corinne? Because we think we know. We think we know. And I love watching, by the way, I love watching the television, listening to journalists ask questions. And sometimes they'll be, these are like recognized professional journalists. Mr. Prime Minister, is it not true that? I'm sorry, that's not a question. <laughs> and that's proof that that person is not truly interested in what their, the, the, the person thinks. They just want to get their line across. That's true. I agree with you on that. I have a final question for you, John. What's your favorite quote that keeps you going? <laughs> Corinne, I'm going to have to give some context on this one. Um, it's with the idea of uh, strategy in negotiations. Um, I'm going to quote my favorite American philosopher, Mike Tyson. Mike, Ty <laughs> <laughs> Mike Tyson was once interviewed um, after a match. And he had knocked this man out in the first round. I think it didn't even last five minutes. And the journalist asked him, he said, Mike, I don't understand. I interviewed this guy yesterday, and he said he had developed a strategy to beat Mike Tyson. And Mike Tyson said the most intelligent thing I have ever heard about strategy. Mike Tyson said, everybody's got a strategy until I hit them. And that is, my, uh, uh, that is my favorite, above all, quotation, uh, especially as pertains to, to negotiation and keeping strategy uh, flexible. Again, stop trying to find 99 ways to say no. Try to find some way to say yes. That's great. Thank you, John, for a great discussion. We'll hope you'll come back to pass it on and keep sharing with us. I would love to. Thanks. Thank you, Corinne. Well, that's all the time we have today. If anyone would like more information about attending negotiation seminars or would like further information from John Hudson, he can be reached at johnhudson at macmillanhcd.com or through his website, www.macmillanhcd.com. Or if you can't remember all that, you can reach John through us at CWR Talent. We'll pass it on. If you enjoyed listening to today's episode of Pass It On, please give us a follow to receive notification of our next episode. We're counting on you to help us grow, and we appreciate it. And a very special thank you at the end to our lovely sponsor, Nancy Sharp, of the Cider House Studio in Wilton, Connecticut. The original art on our podcast title page has been generously offered to us from Nancy's Love on Linen collection, www.thesiderhousestudio.com. Nancy creates art that makes you happy. I know it does me. Thanks, Nancy. See you soon.